Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, I talk to three members of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Migration. Dr. Khalid Kozer, Executive Director of the Global Community Engagement and Resilience Fund, Ratna Omidwar, Senator of Canada, and Yasmina Filali, Founder and President of the Fondation Orient Occident. So, Khaled, uh, could you tell us a bit more of what the current state of play is in migration globally? What are the greatest challenges that we, we face currently in tackling this phenomenon? Sure. Thanks for the, uh, for the invitation. I think the place to start is with, with numbers. Um, we think there are around 250 million international migrants in the world, and that includes about 20 million refugees, so far more migrants than refugees. Clearly, that number doesn't include irregular or sometimes undocumented, unauthorized. We use different terms, but irregular migrants, and it's hard to count those, but we think there may be 30 or 40 million irregular migrants in the world. And clearly, this number of 250 million or so only includes international migrants, not internal migrants. There are far more internal migrants than international migrants. Now, when you look at this number of 250 million or so, on the one hand, it's a, it's a large number. It's uh, almost the population of Indonesia, which is the fourth largest country in the world. It's one in 33 people on the face of the planet. On the other hand, it's only 3% of the world's population. And I think we need to note that often in migration, we use statistics to alarm people rather than inform people. But it's pretty clear to me that the significance of migration far outweighs its numerical significance. There may be only 3% of the world's population who are migrants, but their impact is much greater than that 3%. Their political impact is clearly very important indeed, and we've seen around the world, in the USA, in Europe, in Australia, that migrants and migration are rising quickly on the political agenda, I think often for the, for the wrong reasons. Clearly, their economic significance also, I think, outweighs their numerical significance, and it's very clear from the evidence that migration is good for our economies. It helps our economies grow. Migrants bring talent and skills. Migrants employ people. Migrants put more money back into the system than they take out of the system. And I think migration also has a very strong social impact. Migrants drive multiculturalism. Migrants drive global cities. Uh, migrants drive uh, tolerance. Now, having said all of that, which I think is very positive, I think we also have to recognize and be realistic that at times migration poses a challenge. Uh, if large numbers of migrants arrive in a, in a municipality, as they did, for example, in Sweden uh, towards the end of 2015, clearly there can be pressure uh, on social services. Sometimes migrants may compete with nationals in the labor market. Sometimes migrants may become violent. Clearly there are challenges around migration as well. But overwhelming the evidence is clear that migration and migrants are positive for our world uh, and not negative. Uh, and if I can answer your question, for me the greatest challenge is that there is a lack of objective debate, that we have a large number of people who see migrants as a threat, we have some, migrants who, uh, some people who see migrants as a, as a great opportunity, the truth is somewhere in between and I think we need to have a rational, sensible discussion about where migration works, where it doesn't work and how we can realize its potential. So this, this objective debate, uh, how do you see it progressing these days? compared to 10 years ago, and what could it be in the next 10 years? Well, one of your guests is from Canada, and I think that she will confirm that in Canada there is still, I think, a fairly rational and sensible debate. But I, I, I fear that in the continent from which I'm speaking, Europe, 
we are having a fairly irrational debate at the moment. We are we have politicians who I don't think are showing the the appropriate political leadership. Uh, we have a public that I think is often misinformed about migration and is scared about migration. I think they are they're wrong, but I think we have to take their concerns seriously. And we have a media that I also think is not helping to generate a sensible debate. So I think in Europe at the moment we are in some trouble to try to recover the ground for a sensible, safe, objective debate about migration. So if you could paint the picture a bit for us for, for the future in 10 to 15 years and we think about some realistic scenarios in some way, what would be one an optimistic one and what would be a pessimistic scenario for, for this ecosystem of migration that you described? Sure, thanks. I mean, in terms of numbers, for the last 30 years or so, the, the total number of migrants, this is international migrants, has remained at around 3% of the world's population. Now, of course, in absolute figures, that means the number has grown increasing very quickly because the world's population has grown quickly. But most of the estimates that I have seen are that migration and the number of migrants will remain at around 3% of the world's population, recognizing that the world's population is going to grow by perhaps 2 billion people over the next 30 years or so. So the number of migrants absolutely will grow, but as a proportion of the world's population, it will remain fairly uh, constant. The two big pressures on migration, one, of course, is climate change, and there's a big debate at the moment about uh, how quickly climate change will, will have an impact, how many people will be forced to leave their homes as a result of the effects of climate change, where they'll go, and so on and so forth. Uh, my summary of the research is that we will have large numbers of people leaving their homes as a result of climate change. Most will move inside their countries. Some will move over local borders, but absolutely on the whole, most people will still move within the south. And let's not forget that most migrants and most refugees still live in the global south and not uh, the global uh, north. The other pressure is demography. We have uh, aging populations in Canada, in Japan, in China, in Russia, in Europe, and so on and so forth, and massively growing and youthful populations in places like sub-Saharan Africa. And clearly that's going to place uh, pressure on migration going forward. The, the, the optimistic scenario is that we manage migration, is that we realize migrants' rights, and is that we realize the potential of migrants. And that is absolutely within our reach if we do this sensibly. The pessimistic scenario is that we don't manage migration. There's far more irregular migration. More and more migrants are driven underground and are trafficked and exploited, and that we see migration becoming an increasing challenge and burden rather than the opportunity that it should be. And I genuinely believe that if we get this right, migration will build a greater and better world in the next 30 years. Thank you, Khalil. I think that's a good point to, to turn to, to Ratna to ask, as, you know, as a country that on one hand has an objective dialogue, according to Khalil, and the other, it has an aging population. But uh, what, what can and must governments do to, to strive towards the optimistic scenario that Khalil described and to avoid the pessimistic one? There are a number of things that national governments can do in their own capacity but there is a lot more they can do when they act in concert with others uh, within the multilateral arena and the multinational arrangements of the United Nations, etc. But as nation states, I think one of the first things uh, national governments and countries must do is they must accept that in and out migration is a reality of the modern world. People, as Khalid has said, more and more people are in the move even if they are in, they are just uh, 3% of the global population, the absolute numbers are, are on the rise. And people are, are coming and leaving, and there's circular migration uh, of a different kind. So I think nation states need to, first of all, have policies and systems to respond to this reality. In the optimistic scenario, 
uh, Khaled pointed out, management. And one of the reasons Canada has a reasonable debate uh, and a reasonable, dis- reasonable discourse on, my, on migration is because we have a highly managed system v- in a country which is fairly remote. Uh, from the rest of the world, you know, the top of the world, the world's longest border, and two big oceans beside us. Uh, so we do have, we have a lot of good luck, as I would say. We can't lend people our geography, but we can lend people our strategies that have led to, to date at least, a reasoned and reasonable debate on migration. And that policy includes, you know, highly managed selection. We pick and choose everyone who comes into our country. We then back it up with huge public investments and integration and language training and job counseling. And then we strive very quickly to make people citizens so that they are fully invested that Canada is their country in a complete way. And I think these are the three uh, foundational blocks of investing in in migrants so that you move very quickly from them, from migrants being, uh, you know, the other to migrants becoming us. Now, I'm not going to pretend, and I don't think we should, that there are not challenges in every country of migration, whether they are successful or not. The short-term challenges are enormous, the, the, especially when the numbers are, are high from one or two particular jurisdictions, and especially when migrants choose to settle in urban settings where there is a concentration and a density, and you add into that the power of technology to keep people sort of in satellite cities of their own as opposed to merging in and integrating in with the other communities. So the short-term challenges are enormous, but if you have managed deliberate approaches and you bring the private sector in as a partner and you focus on the local expressions of integration over time, and this over time is, I think, the real uh, tension here is how much time can nation states afford, but over time you will get to successful integration. Those are the building blocks that have worked very well for Canada. They work, I think, by and large. They would work anywhere else in the world. But the challenges are maybe more related to geography than to the policy appetite. This is is very true. And uh, I think one thing to to look at and would like your your opinion is, you know, for for those countries that have been struggling uh, to to deal with uh, with this phenomenon, uh, and are looking to some of the technologies that you mentioned are also could be negative use but also positive. What are the, the new technologies that you see, you know, with upcoming fourth industrial revolution uh, being as a, as a good tool, as an ally in tackling this phenomenon? What are the technologies that uh, you're most excited about? Well, I think there are some wonderful examples of how technology is helping uh, refugees in camps with prepaid MasterCards so that they can buy their daily necessities uh, instead of having to line up for hours in, in inclement weather. Uh, I know that LinkedIn has developed a really interesting tool in Sweden, and it's being brought to Canada as well, uh, to document skills and capacities of, uh, of, of refugees. I think the whole skills area will be very, very well served by technology. All the, all the employers I work with in Canada and internationally always say to me, where's the skills inventory? 
How do we get to people who have the skills that we need? I think technology, uh, done big, done large, imagine a worldwide database of, uh, of a skills inventory capturing uh, the competencies and the education of uh, individuals who are looking for opportunity, safety, love, whatever they may be looking for, and that links them. I think that is a huge promise. But there's also promise of linking technology from institution to institution. One of the biggest challenges has been credential recognition. What is an engineer worth, an engineer educated in India, what is he or she worth in Europe or the United States? What is there or Canada? What what do their credentials actually translate into? And I think this is where uh, you can have partnerships between universities, between systems, between large international employers, and technology can really move the needle, I believe, on labor migration and appropriate uh, utilization of skills and education. Because one of the biggest underbellies of migration is the unfulfilled expectations of highly educated people who are uh, forced into uh, low-skill, low-level jobs, leave alone their, the impact of this on their earning power. Think about what they go through when they lose dignity and face. And that is a hotbed of uh, rejection, and it expresses itself in, in, in undesirable ways. So I would say that technology can actually have huge uh, beneficial impact if it's deployed strategically and smartly and in partnership with the private sector. Thank you, Hannah. This sounds all very very promising. I wonder if Yasmina could move to you for to a bit more of a more of South perspective than, than Ratnas, if you want, and from a civil society uh, perspective. What are your biggest challenges right now uh, in, in your work in, in this space, and what are the, the tools that you're most excited about using in, in dealing with the challenges in the, in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, we had uh, last year in, in our foundation uh, a workshop which uh, explored te- technolo- technological progress in uh, migration and uh, humanitarian space. That was to um, uh, explore how we can uh, be more efficient uh, addressing ourselves to to migrants. Um, As you know, uh, a lot of migrants are very well connected and uh, uh, they're using their uh, smartphones for communication, for mapping, for uh, social networking. We start by identifying uh, challenges, opportunities, mainly in Africa and, and, and Europe. So first of all, uh, phones were um, and are indispensable for refugees, um, for security issues, for uh, communication, information. And uh, in the middle of the workshop, we were saying to ourselves that connectivity could be seen as a human right in a way. Uh, We have to to know that one-third of their uh, disposal income is uh, is used uh, to be connected. So it means how phones became a, a lifeline, especially to find secret routes, to have to find health, to find also a way of uh, having jobs. So uh, this is the first part of what we have been noticing and and how useful it was for us to communicate with them uh, through this technology. 
And the second thing that uh, was very important for us, because we're working uh, as we are talking about migrants, we're also and uh, mainly talking about uh, identity. And uh, through new technology, we can think and uh, explore the fact that migrants have a double identity. Um, in being able to be in two places at the same time, in the hosted country and in their home countries, being connected as they are connected today, it means that uh, they have a capture, a double identity. So in a way, it's, it has been a very important topic because migrants in some cases, and I'm thinking of being from North Africa, I'm thinking about uh, the Jasmine Revolution and how people were participating and, and had an active role in the po political and social life and social development of their country of origin. And uh, in the same time, they are uh, willing to integrate in the host country. Um, the thing that could be a problem in that case is that maybe this digital identity could isolate more uh, the migrants. It could be an obstacle for integration because they are maybe too much in their home countries. But this is a, a very uh, important uh, matter that we have to understand when we work on, on the ground, is that we have a transnational identity thanks to um, to this technology. It's what we call the, the culture of, of bonds. So um, this is um, what we have been um, exploring in this workshop, and mainly on the ground what is important for an NGO is that we understood that through technology we can have a much powerful impact and that we can scale. You can reach much more people in a quicker time. So this is very powerful for us. How ready is the, the civil society sector uh, in terms of utilizing this technology? Um, I imagine that uh, the most savvy sector around this is the private sector. Is there a lot of collaboration uh, with the, the private sector on this from the NGO side? Well, I have to say it's, it's not easy because uh, the private sector um, is not aware yet of how, you know, sometimes I, I define the, the work that we do in meaning in technology uh, side that uh, we are uh, learning from the migrants more than we are adapting our uh, ideas uh, uh, on the ground. And uh, the private sector, we have to uh, go and, and go again to them to, to explain and, and to explain to them how much, how much important uh, the link between the NGOs, the civil society, and the private sector could be. I think that we should uh, strengthen much more this partnership. Ratna, you, you did mention that you... Uh, at, at your line of work, you have a lot of good collaboration with the private sector, and that is crucial. What is the role of governments in in bridging this this gap between the NGOs and the private sector to for the society's welfare? And how how can that happen? Well, I have two ways of thinking about that. I, I think sometimes when government is too present, it can actually hinder the conversation. The conversation between civil society actors. Uh, citizens and private corporations sometimes is far more fluid when government is on the edges or at least not in the center. But on the other hand, you know, government can create an enabling environment that lacks a certain kind of fluidity 
and connection happen. And I'll, I'll give you an example. In, in Canada, we, we have a, a, a fairly well-known uh, initiative which matches private sponsors and their connections with refugees who, who are, who have been approved by the UNHCR to come to Canada. And, and sort of they, they are the hosts of the refugees. And this relationship works within a policy parameter that the government has provided. But in that box, the private sector and private sponsors uh, work quite independently as long as certain guidelines and rules are met. So I think if the government could, governments all over the world would follow a pattern of setting the framework but allowing private citizens and, and corporations to find their own own sweet spot in this context, that is probably the best way of going forward. Uh, pri- the private sector is always... Uh, more leery of government than they should be. And I also want to echo what Yasmina said. It's not easy uh, to bring the private sector uh, for all the right reasons to the table. So whereas in Canada, you know, I've had a fair deal of success with bringing big corporations to the table, I'm always concerned that their motivation is more around corporate social responsibility or brand recognition as opposed to actually working with individuals who will enrich uh, their workforce and the quality of the work. So there's there's some bridging that needs to be done uh, between the motivation over the long term and the motivation in the short term. Khalid, maybe we could close with you in, in terms of looking at the global picture again. How, how can the, the different stakeholders come together, you know, having listened to, to Yasmina and Ratna, so that we can leverage all the positive aspects of these new technologies, these new ideas, these new insights that are coming out and contain the, the risks going forward? Well, I mean, without getting too technical, I think we should note that there are at the moment two so-called global compacts being developed, one on migration and one on refugees. These were agreed by world leaders at the UN General Assembly last September, last September excuse me, and they're expected to deliver next September in 2018. Uh, Now, there are some critics of these processes, but I think these processes provide a real opportunity to to really look at how the world is dealing with migration and some of the issues that both Ratna and Yasmina have identified. Can we be more proactive and less reactive? Can we make sure that we are bringing in the right stakeholders at the right time? Can we start to realize the potential of migrants rather than seeing them as a a threat and and a challenge? And I think so far these processes look promising. They have been very consultative, they have travelled the world, I think they're coming up with some initial very strong conclusions. So I have some hope that at a, at a global level we are beginning to look at a, a serious discussion and a serious process to make this process work better. Now as I think Ratner has observed, the global level is, is one issue, but we also need to make sure that this is replicated regionally, especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, nationally, and again Canada uh, I think leads the way and other countries need to learn from places like Canada but also at the municipality level. And I think really when we look to the future, this is about cities. We know that most people in the world live in cities and it's absolutely clear that most migrants in the world live in and go to cities. So we must make sure that we include cities in this conversation as well. And if I may, on the private sector piece, and I I know that, of course, the World Economic Forum is the leading institution for public-private collaboration. And we are, myself and Ratner are the co-chairs and Yasmina is is a member We are leading a World Economic Forum Global Future Council on migration exactly to try to make this conversation happen and to try to bring the private sector and the public sector together to make migration work for all involved. 
That was Dr. Khalid Kozer, Senator Ratna Omidvar, and Yasmina Filali on the future of migration. My name is Rigas Adzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>